people need to realize that politics can rapidly change, countries can rapidly change, and the things you do today on chain and Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, those things last forever. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. BCB Group provides online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry, and yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a bank, and they also understand Bitcoin. And they reached out to me, so I've moved my business banking across to BCB, and I could not be happier. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Compass Mining, but they are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of Compass and I am back mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for nine months with Compass now, and I've already mined 0.66 Bitcoin, which has paid off two of my S19s already. Now any of you can start mining with Compass Mining, and to help you, Compass has launched their Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is, based on a number of factors like price, miner age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes Bitcoin mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right. We're hodlers. We're not sellers. I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips and I have set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. So all you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. I'm excited to announce my new sponsor, Cake Wallet, who I've recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share your important information with unnecessary third parties. And with Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching, and the app is designed to make it super easy to set up your wallet and back up your private keys. Now, if you want to find out more and check out Cake Wallet, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google App Store. Welcome to the show, Seth, for Privacy. How you doing, man? <laughs> doing pretty good, Peter. Thank, Thank you uh, so much for having me on. This is a great, pro- great pleasure. 
Oh, well, listen, I wanted you on. I've been uh, following you for a little while now, seeing you jumping into some of the debates uh, regarding privacy. We uh, have Matt O'Dell in the audience watching us here. <laughs> uh, something I've been discussing with him the other day. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's been really interesting watching you jump into the debates regarding uh, privacy. Even the other day, I just tagged you into something. I was like, fuck it, Seth, <laughs> Seth can come and answer this uh, yeah. for me. Not everyone listening will know who you are. Uh, I don't know how much you want to share about who you are, your background, you know, um, but please go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I can give a really quick intro. I, I am Seth for privacy, but try to be a little bit more approachable, try to keep keep the face out there if, if it's helpful. Um, but I'm relatively new to the scene in the, the grand scheme of things. Got into Bitcoin in 2017, just kind of hoping purely for number go up and only cared about it as an investment. But um, I think quickly thankful to other people around me realize that it could be a tool for freedom and that there was a lot of value and not just the number go up and speculative aspects of it, um, but really that it could be a, a force for good, at least on the personal level and maybe at the, the broader societal level. Um, and then uh, eventually went through kind of a Bitcoin maximalism phase and stumbled into Monero just because I wanted to mine it because uh, I'm uh, IT is kind of a, site, is a main thing for me. I do a lot of kind of IT work as a hobby and, and have fun with that and building a mining rig seemed fun. So got into Monero that way and then had no care about personal privacy or anything like that in the world. Um, but a lot of the Monero people helped me to understand how important personal privacy is, both with cryptocurrencies, but really at a much broader scale. Um, with the way that you choose to share your data, who you give it to, um, just the, the approach that you take to the world in a uh, really a digital only age almost. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of that. But since then, when I kind of took the dive into personal privacy, it's helped me to, I think, get a better overall picture of what Bitcoin is and to try to help drive Bitcoin privacy while also doing what I can for Monero because I think it's a very valuable tool today as well. So you came for the games and you stayed for the revolution. It's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I uh, I made a show with Fluffy Pony back in maybe late 2018, early 2019. I can't remember when it was. And yep. one of the first things I said to him, I said, "There are Bitcoin maxis and there are Bitcoin maxis, but Monero is okay." <laughs> and we talked a lot about that. And uh, he explained why well, he considers it because it was a fair launch. Uh, mm -hmm as opposed to some uh, cryptocurrencies, haven't been such a fair launch. And uh, also that it offers uh, something out of the box that you currently can't get from Bitcoin. And yeah. I trended towards a Bitcoin maxi, but I've never really felt like I'm one of those people who wants to call Monero a shitcoin. Um, it feels like it is a tool that is useful to people in certain scenarios. It offers a little more privacy out of the box. Mm -hmm. And... I've been seeing a debate going back and forward regarding this. So what I wanted to talk to you today was just about privacy with Bitcoin, yep. privacy with Monero, uh, understand the trade-offs, try and get some honest answers out there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the challenges with Bitcoin maximalism is that we've created this almost, uh, I don't want to be to be insulting, but almost like a religion around Bitcoin and Bitcoin maximalism. And therefore, I think some people maybe criticize or are detractors of Monero because they feel like they are maybe being disloyal to Bitcoin. And I, I don't think that's particularly helpful. So I want to be as mm -hmm. fair as I can today. But at the same time, I've also found some of the Monero community quite difficult in that they want to criticize Bitcoin in a way that's a little bit over the top to try and pr promote Monero. Mm. I don't think either needs to be too critical of each other. I think uh, Bitcoin is is the best form of money. 
will be the best form of money. I, th I don't think it will be beaten personally, but I do see Monero as a tool that Bitcoiners can use. Does mm -hmm. that sound like a fair setup? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very reasonable approach to take. And I mean, Monero is one of the few cryptocurrencies that I don't think anyone can rightfully call a shitcoin or a scam. Like, it's one of the few that has a very similar birth to Bitcoin. There was birthed by anonymous or pseudonymous people, um, has fair issuance, there was no pre-mine, nothing like that. Um, it has a lot of the same kind of ethos behind it and aiming for great decentralization and aiming for a lot of the same things that we love Bitcoin for. Um, but obviously with this focus on privacy being a, a very fundamental aspect to Monero. Um, so it's, I think it has a lot of similarities and I think the approach I'm seeing many people take, and I think there's a really strong momentum behind this, is that kind of the Bitcoin is for savings, Monero is for spending approach. Yeah, I think that's a great bit of marketing for Monero. <laughs> uh, I think Bitcoin is for saving and Bitcoin is for spending. It can be. Uh, Monero is also for spending in <laughs> certain scenarios. But uh, um, if I'm you know, going back to my travels to El Salvador, where mm -hmm. there's been massive adoption of Bitcoin and expansion of the Lightning Network, uh, both within El Salvador with the project launch, but also across El Salvador, you can go to Starbucks, you can go to... Uh, peace out, you can go to any of these places and spend your Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. there I would be spending Bitcoin and not Monero. But I, yeah. there are scenarios where I've used Bitcoin in the past when now I would, if I was to make the similar purchases, uh, I would have a preference to go for Monero just because of certain risks associated with it for me. But mm -hmm. one, one of the things I really want to just get across and be quite clear to people is that uh, I don't think there needs to be a fight between these two cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Uh, I don't think uh, it, I don't think it helps either party. And I, but I do think there's some healthy competition which can drive privacy forward in the way that people want to do it with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But let's start with Bitcoin. Let's talk about Bitcoin. My I did made a made a good show with Matt the other day talking about privacy with Bitcoin. Uh, but I also thought your analogy the other day where you compared it to PHP was mm -hmm. very, uh, PGP was very good. And the reason I thought that was a a, a good take is because. Uh, every time I've approached uh, my uh, Bitcoin privacy, there's a lot of things I have to think about. I have to think oh. about my IP address. I have to think about, do I use Tor? Do I, do I use Tor within my node? Do I use Tor? Like, there's so many things that, in the end, I, I even if I followed the uh, instructions provided in the various uh, articles or videos you find, I have no confidence that I haven't fucked up or made a mistake. Um, now, that's not a reason to not start attacking uh, my privacy and starting to improve it. Matt's given me some great tips, and there's some things I'll definitely take away from it and start working on. Mm -hmm. But for me, I just don't know if I'm making mistakes. I think for anyone, let's approach this show like um, it's not, it's, we're not making this one for Matt O'Dell's and people who understand <laughs> privacy. Let's make this for people who just don't know anything, right? Who really have a fundamental. Uh, basic fundamental understanding of Bitcoin. Uh, maybe they're new to it or whatever. So as a starting point for you, it's going to seem like a really simple question, but why do you think people should be caring about their privacy? Why is it, you know, why have you made that like central to your place in this ecosystem? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's something that most people overlook in a, a broad sense. Um, even just stepping outside of cryptocurrency, most people have taken the approach of the incentives that I'm given by the companies that I love, by the brands I love, by the social media I love, is I give them my data and they give me a product that I want. Um, and so we've we've kind of gotten used to this 
system of commerce where we're paying with our data, we're paying with all of the sensitive information about who we are, about the thoughts that we think, about the things that we write, about the, the things that we love, the things that we hate. And we're paying with all of this information to get access to something that is being sold to us as being a, a good for us and a net good for society. Um, but we're quickly seeing that those things are very harmful to the individual and very harmful to society. Um, and so people overlooking that and either not caring about personal privacy or taking, and I, I love Odell's approach to this, kind of taking the idea of, I'm totally screwed anyways. I don't know anything about personal privacy, so I'm just not even gonna worry about it. And I'm just gonna go through life um, as if it didn't matter. Um, we're seeing that kind of be the more the norm in society. Um, but when we look at cryptocurrencies specifically, we've had a lot of similar approaches. And I think a lot of it is because early on in the Bitcoin days, people kind of assumed that Bitcoin was anonymous. Um, and I don't think it was like improperly pushed as that by Satoshi or anybody like that, but it was a, very much a pseudonymous system that people thought that was good enough. Um, and this pseudonymity where you have these pseudonyms on chain, which are the addresses that you're given, uh, the address that you give somebody to, to send you funds, that is really a pseudonym for you. Um, and you can use multiple, you should never use the same one. There are all these kind of basic things for Bitcoin privacy, but people thought that that pseudonymity would be good enough. Um, but in reality, it's a very, very fragile pseudonymity. And even more so now that we have invasive regulations like KYC, the Know Your Customer, anti-money laundering AML laws. We have things like that that mean that usually when people are buying or selling Bitcoin, they're also attaching their ID to it. So now these exchanges and the governments who ultimately have control over them can attach your ID with who you are directly to on-chain addresses, which means that you have no even fragile pseudonymity. You are just directly linked between your ID and all of your on-chain activity. Um, and for most people spending, you may not worry about what that means today. And I think the thing that I harp on for people in more Western societies where like, I, I'm not undergoing any kind of oppression right now. I definitely think there are flaws within the US system, but it's not something where I'm suffering. But people need to realize that politics can rapidly change, countries can rapidly change. And the things you do today on chain and Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, those things last forever or as long as the chain goes, which with Bitcoin, I think probably will be forever. Um, and so the things that you choose to do today will irrevocably, irrevocably be on chain as you doing them. And if at any point you've linked that to your identity in the past or in the future, you link that to your, to your identity, that can come back to haunt you very quickly. Um, and that could be something that today is completely legal and normal. It doesn't need to be buying drugs on a dark net market. Um, it could be supporting someone who's running for political office that you favor who in the future is known as a criminal and then they come after anyone who donated to them. Um, and those things can rapidly change in countries. So I think those, those are some of the core reasons why you should worry about privacy, even if you're not doing something that you would deem like illegal today or dangerous today. I think the wake up call for me was with regards to the Canadian truckers. And, you know, you and I have the benefit of growing up in a liberal Western democracy, fairly mm -hmm. relatively safe country, mm -hmm. you know, questionable governments at times, but like not under dictators. And um, I would have considered Canada the same. And I don't think you have to, you don't have to decide what side you're on with the Canadian truckers, but uh, the right to protest, I think is an, an important right. Very much. But even, even if they could have deemed the protests themselves illegal, the financial penalties for people who were just donating to what was seen as a fundraise to mm -hmm. suddenly be either persecuted, uh, financially cancelled, to me was, that was kind of a scary move for a 
you know, for a Western liberal democracy to make. And that made me realize, just like you said, things can change quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that was, I hope, a good wake up call for many people to see that governments understand that if they can cut off your finances, they ultimately can cut off all of your other rights without directly attacking them. Um, because just like we saw with the Freedom Convoy, and we've seen in many other authoritarian countries that have taken similar measures, if they can cut off your access to funding, obviously you need money to be able to buy food, to buy gas, to feed your family. There are all of these things that if you don't have a way to fund yourself and then pay for things, you ultimately have to abide by what they want or flee. Like there are no other choices. Um, and so when governments can kind of perform financial oppression, it's fairly simple in the current broken system. With Bitcoin, it does make it more difficult. Um, but we even saw in the Freedom Convoy situation that a lot of things were not handled very well in the approach that was taken. And a lot of the privacy taken on the Bitcoin side was not done well either. And so there were a lot of issues with funds being traced directly to truckers, funds being frozen when they tried to deposit them to exchange for Canadian dollars. Um, and we saw a lot of problems with that, that fragile pseudonymity that, yes, Bitcoin was able to be used to donate which was a huge, huge step up from GoFundMe and the others, because obviously they could just shut things down with the flip of a switch. Well, they didn't. They stole their fucking money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's very simple. Fuck you, GoFundMe. <laughs> and Bitcoin makes that much more difficult, which is a, a huge win. Uh, and that is very important for people to understand. But on the flip side, Bitcoin's fragile pseudonymity can also be a problem because it can be very easy for governments to trace funds. And we saw in the Freedom Convoy, they quickly traced all of the funds Funnily enough, it was the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It's the Mounties who were, were the ones tracing funds and, and blacklisting all of the known UTXOs and trying to make sure that centralized exchanges would censor and um, confiscate funds when they were deposited, all of that. So there are definitely aspects of Bitcoin, while they can enable these things, if you don't do things correctly, you run into a lot of problems. Um, and situations like that are a lot of the reason why I care so much about Monero, because it can be an extremely valuable tool especially in scenarios like that. I think in many more, but especially in scenarios like that where you're, you are doing something actively against the state. You know you're going to be persecuted. So you need to think very deeply about both personal privacy and on-chain privacy. Well, and, and we're getting into the era of why privacy is important. I think it was David Chown when he was working on eCash or even, might have even been prior to that where he wrote, and I, we should try and dig it out, put it in the show notes, but he wrote a very good piece on why uh, financial privacy is an important pillar of democracy because mm. if you don't have private transactions, then you can either be tracked or you can be persecuted for having polit particular political beliefs. And if mm -hmm. you want a free and open democracy, you have to have financial privacy. And I'm not sure what it's like in, here in the US. I mean, the UK is a fucking shit show. But in, in the US, what, uh, what privacy rights should you have, or you meant to have, constitutionally maybe, I know the Fourth Amendment is relevant, but with the likes of the NSA, I mean, we know that it, it, they, the, the US government tracks a lot, but are you meant to actually have some fundamental privacy protection? Theoretically, yes. Yeah. I mean, especially with cash, which thankfully is still very common in the US. Um, it's one of the main places remaining that's very, very cash friendly of like Western societies. Obviously, third world countries are normally very cash friendly, but... Um, with cash, obviously, you have very good privacy guarantees, both technically and you're supposed to have good privacy from the government. Um, as far as like banking laws and that kind of thing, normally your data is supposed to be protected outside of a warrant being issued. Um, but there are lots of flaws in that system. So that, that breaks apart very quickly. But you should have good financial privacy laws protecting you here in the U.S., assuming all else holds up. Um, just a lot of that can fall apart very quickly under 
whatever pretense they decide to kind of roll with. Um, but generally, you do have pretty good guarantees. And I think on the back of that, we've had this kind of erosion of privacy from the large uh, tech companies, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's, I mean, I, th- I think I saw today somebody put on Twitter, someone uploaded a file to Google Drive and it was rejected. Yeah. So we've rejected that file based on its contents. Now, I don't know what the contents were. Um, I think it was something like, I saw this as well, it was... Sort of, I think it was deaths in nursing homes due to COVID. And, or it was along those lines. Can anyway. you look it up? Yeah, have a look. Yeah. Um, now yeah. that gets into a very, very weird place because that's kind of thought policing the files that you want to host on a network. And in some ways, therefore, that's control of speech privately. <laughs> You've not even, I mean, it's bad enough to be um, censored in, in uh, public scenarios, but in, in a private scenario where you just want to host a file, I mean, who knows if this person's not working on a report into the range of opinions with regards to COVID and therefore mm-hmm. they want to see, you know, the good, the bad, what is truth, what is misinformation. They can't even work on that because they can't host that file. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think people should expect this, but it is definitely startling when people first see it. I mean, the concept we have in Bitcoin of not your, not your keys, not your coins is a very, it's very similar and analogous, but people haven't realized the risks of kind of, I guess, not your server, not your data would be a a similar analogy there in that you're sending something to Google. It, yes, technically it's under your account, but it's theirs. They host the data, they have the servers, they have total control. Um, And Google specifically, like Google Drive for a long time has been censoring documents and information that they don't don't want to host. Mostly illegal content would be the main thing that they focus on, but they've also been key in a lot of censorship around COVID stuff, and, and there's a lot of history there. And that that is not uncommon, and people should not be surprised, but it is something that I think many people are just waking up to. I don't actually... You found it? Yeah, uh, it was the it was a nursing home death by states, um, COVID death by states, but I don't, it's hard to tell you if it's definitely true or not. Like, it's just a screenshot. Yeah. Um, and, it, yeah, someone's right, like, interestingly, someone said, uh, what if the file contained proprietary or confidential information? Like, there's, there's stuff that we don't know about it, but... Yeah. It highlights something. It's still a weird, weird place, especially from a company who originally touted themselves as don't do evil or don't be evil. Um, one of the things I'm surprised about is that more companies haven't identified privacy as a competitive advantage. I think Apple feels yeah. like they've been fairly good. And then you do have things like DuckDuckGo on the search side of things. Shame it's a slightly shit search engine, but it, it is still fairly good. Uh, have you been surprised by that or is there more being done on that that I'm not seeing? No, I think there's been a, a relatively large push over the past few years for companies to either be actual privacy companies who actually want to preserve your privacy and build tools that are are uniquely enabling for people who wake up to that need. And then we've also seen a lot of Apple specifically, but Google's also been fairly large in that as well of I think really using privacy as a marketing term more than they actually care about user privacy. Um, I think like Apple, for instance, I like to tell people that they're they're very good as far as third-party privacy is concerned. Just the idea of like your data is only going to be between you and Apple normally. Yep. Um, they're going to have full purview into everything you do. Your backups are normally unencrypted. Your iMessage, it's theirs unencrypted. iCloud, theirs unencrypted. Um, so they have access to that, but they have done a very good job of helping to rein in the visibility that other people, other apps, other providers have within the Apple ecosystem. Um, whether that's for your good or ultimately, I, I think what a lot of people have pointed out is that it helps them build a 
marketing monopoly where only they have access to the data of iPhone and Mac OS and uh, iPad users so they can then leverage that to make money. There's a lot of thoughts around if they actually care, if it's just a kind of a grand scheme to do that. But there has been a push, as I think people have realized, that enough people within the populace have said, I at least care enough about privacy to vote with my wallet sometimes. Um, and so companies have latched onto that. And some really good privacy-preserving services have been built out as a result of that, I think. And like Proton with Proton Mail yeah. and Proton VPN and all of their services, I think is a, a very good example of a company that's seen the need, seen a way to monetize off of it. And there's nothing wrong with building a business that Makes is helpful money. for this. Like, yeah, like people always say, like, why would I give them money? Like, they don't need to build a business. They should just build tools. Like, no, like they need to build a business and they can build better privacy preserving tools and do better things for us because they're making money as a result. And I would much rather pay with my money than pay with my data. So are you, um, are you an advocate of uh, both Proton Mail and Proton VPN? I, I've got Proton Mail. I, I haven't used it enough. I have, I have an account, mm -hmm. one account, which I use for just like certain messaging, but I'm still using Gmail for most of mine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, Proton Mail specifically, I'm a huge fan of. Um, I highly, highly recommend it. Even for more advanced use cases where you have your own domain, you have a team, they have great business plans as well. Um, it works extraordinarily well. They have, I think, the best user experience and interface of really any of the privacy-preserving email services. And their whole revamp has been very well done. Oh, so this revamp. I, so I haven't used it in a while. I always found their web mail interface was shit. <laughs> it was badly designed. Have they changed that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That, so they changed that a little while ago, the last to come were all of their Android apps, which they just changed, which as an Android only user, it's been painful to suffer through their old apps for a long time. While well, iPhone people had the nice one. But. Right. <laughs> Can you use third party email services, but route your, uh, use them as your like uh, mail server? Um, so you could use, they have a tool called Proton Bridge, which you can install on your computer and then you can use any email client with it. Um, but you couldn't use like Gmail with ProtonMail or something like that. So you would need to use ProtonMail itself, but you could use a third-party email client like Apple Mail or uh, Thunderbird or something like that to actually handle your email. And then all of it's going directly through ProtonMail servers and getting all of those guarantees. Do, do they have their own email app? Yeah. Okay. And it, is Not that... a desktop app. They don't have any desktop apps. It's right. just the web app, but they have good iPad, iOS, um, Android apps, all of those. I might check that out. That might be, this might be a time to uh, move off Gmail for that. Okay, cool. Uh, and before we get into the next bit, any other cool like privacy tools or tech that you think people should look at? Yeah, I mean, another another really big one for me has been one that actually Proton recently acquired, um, which is both exciting and nerve-wracking just because whenever a bigger company acquires a smaller one, you never really know. But um, one that I've really enjoyed for a long time is called Simple Login. Um, and basically what they do is they provide an email aliasing service where you can create unique email email aliases for every account that you use, just like you would create a unique password for each one, hopefully. Like Apple does when you sign up to an app. Yeah, yeah. Okay. they they added that, um, I guess, about six months ago now. Apple added something very similar, yeah. email aliasing. Um, so it's the same concept, but it's through a third party, so you can do it with not Apple stuff. Um, but that service has been, I think, really a game changer for me, both because... It makes it much easier to manage your email because if you sign up for some service and they sell your email and you start getting all this spam, you just disable the alias and simple login. You don't have to change your email. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about sending it to spam and trying to get your email provider to properly mark it. 
You just disable the alias. You never get email again. And you're my, done. my spans got out of hand recently. I get probably five to 10 emails a day where it's uh, clearly from some mailing list and it's always <laughs> YouTube accounts or NFT launch, launches. Are you getting these ones? No. No, the fucking nightmare <laughs> every single day. Who'd you give your email to? <laughs> I have no idea, but it's just relentless to the point where I'm like, I've got to give up that account now. That yeah. one's got to die because it's just, yeah, it's just relentless. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, privacy with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you went Bitcoin Maxi and then you went towards Monero. <laughs> was that in response to uh, what you found with privacy on Bitcoin or did you just get exposed to Monero and you just thought this was kind of interesting? Like, what was the journey? Yeah, it was really because I, I had done a good bit with Bitcoin privacy before jumping into Monero. Um, back in those days, I'd played around with Wasabi Wallet initially and then Samurai Wallet after that. And because I realized the need for personal privacy, I was trying to do the same on Bitcoin, but it was fairly difficult. I mean, I'm a, a technical person. I was able to do it. It wasn't like impossible, but it was quite difficult. Um, and once I got exposed to Monero, like I mentioned, just wanted to mine it initially, could have cared less about it. Once I got exposed and then started to actually use it instead of just mine it, um, I realized that it, it greatly simplified the whole process of using a cryptocurrency privately. And that's why I started to focus on that. I've never stepped away from Bitcoin completely. Um, a lot of the content that I make and a lot of the conversations I have and things that I talk about on Twitter, et cetera, are Bitcoin-focused and are Bitcoin privacy-focused. Um, but I, I have shifted most of my time, my free time, to Monero because I think it's a much simpler tool to use. You don't have to care about privacy. You could both not care and have no idea what you're doing, and you can gain very strong privacy guarantees with Monero. Not perfect, there are trade-offs, and we can walk through some of those as well, but it's, especially as someone who I think I've kind of become a privacy advocate and I'm trying to make content that's more broadly privacy-focused, the tools that I recommend need to protect people well by default, and that is very much a a low bar for me. And if something doesn't surpass that bar, I'm going to be very hesitant or I'm not going to recommend it. Okay, so I'm not in that world where I think every, well, ideally every tri- uh, transaction in the world I would make would be private. But yeah. I'm, I'm in that world that I accept a lot of them aren't, and that's just the reality of life. But I, I know there are transactions I've made in the past um, that I know uh, that I did with Bitcoin mm-hmm. that uh, I assumed I was uh, anonymous, and uh, yeah. and I clearly wasn't. And if I was to make similar transactions today, I would, I would want it to be private. And my problem with trying to achieve privacy on Bitcoin and, and I'm, I'm not I don't want to detract from Bitcoin I don't want to feel like I'm attacking it because I, I don't want Monero people to jump on this and suddenly say oh pizza Monero guy but my my difficulty is is that like I said to you before I don't know what trails of data I'm leaving behind with my IP address so I say I want to make this transaction I don't know if I can be identified with my IP address so how do I hide my IP address I don't know if I need to create a separate wallet. I can create a sub-address. I don't know if the sub-address can be linked to the other addresses. Uh, I don't know if I should be using Tor. Uh, I don't know if I've made some mistake where a UTXO has come from, and say I bought it on an exchange, and it's gone to that wallet, and I've done everything correct there, and then I spent it, but I've been tracked all the way back. Uh, I've never done a coin join. I, I tried, and I got a bit confused. I'm going to go back and do it. Definitely going to do it again. Mm-hmm. So I recognize the tools are there and I recognize people are doing a, like a, a really good job. But with Bitcoin, what, what is the challenge of doing privacy out of the box? Do you think in the world of Bitcoin, privacy is being approached in the right, right way, step by step, providing more tools, or are you actually critical of it? 
I mean, anyone who has followed me at all definitely knows that I'm very critical of Bitcoin's approach to privacy and okay. really almost every single cryptocurrency's approach to privacy. Um, and I think I, I wish people had a little bit thicker skin when it came to Bitcoin because a critical response to Bitcoin is not necessarily hating on it or wanting it to fail or anything like that. Um, and it's always interesting to see the feedback I get when I talk critically of things that Bitcoin approaches that Bitcoin has taken technically. I'm not bad-mouthing the, the project or the people behind it, but really the approach that's being taken. Um, and uh, yeah, I, th I think the approach that's being taken is an understandable one because of what the current narratives around Bitcoin are. Um, and I think that narratives really control what happens with Bitcoin. It is ultimately code. It is ultimately a, uh, a cryptocurrency project. Things can be changed. The base layer could be changed. Um, we could have hard forks. These are all theoretically possible things, but obviously with the narratives around Bitcoin, most of those things are not going to happen. Okay, let's, let's start on that one. So what, what kind of change do you think that Bitcoin could do that would require a hard fork? Because I've, I've got a strong defense against the hard yeah. fork, but, but tell me what, what you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, the ultimately the the reason why, like I have talked about, I would be a fan of a Bitcoin hard fork, and I I understand that that I don't think that will ever happen. Like I, in, in a realistic world, I don't think that's going to happen, and I don't think there will ever be enough people who want that for that to happen, unless there was like a bug or something that could only be fixed through a hard fork. Um, but or, the, or, the, or I mean, I I could see a scenario where there becomes a pressing need for a, a larger block size. I know we've had the block size debate, we had the block wars, um, but I know people in the Bitcoin said it's not. Never, it's at the right time, and we may get to a time within ten years that Bitcoin's being used so much that there is a pressing need for more block size. And like, uh, I would look to other people. I've looked at it back, <laughs> and I would say, "Well, what do you think?" And and I would be led by them. But but I don't think that's a never. But I think on features, it feels more unlikely because if there's a disagreement on the features, it's not just a hard fork. It could become a true chain split. And you can end up with two coins, and then you end up with Bitcoin, and maybe this one <laughs> is a, a Bitcoin private. And I actually think that Bitcoin private would ultimately fail. Yeah, and that's where, really, when I talk about hard fork, I would really mean a non-contentious hard fork. And that's really what, like in Monero, we have had non-contentious hard forks. We've had several of them because we want to implement these changes at the base layer. We want to enforce them via the protocol to make sure that everyone gets the best privacy guarantees we can bring and that we remove as many possible kind of ways to shoot themselves in the foot. Obviously, within Bitcoin, a non-contentious hard fork of anything, really, would be hard to fathom. Um, so that's definitely a less likely scenario. But the reason why I talk about that is because when you're looking at how to do privacy on-chain and really privacy in any kind of tool, even outside of cryptocurrency, the, def the defaults are very, very important. Um, because in Bitcoin, like we talked about, you can use Bitcoin privately. I do, many people do. It's definitely, it's achievable, but it's not approachable. Um, and ultimately in Bitcoin, the default is sending funds very simply between one address to the other. There's a direct deterministic link between the originating address and the destination address that's extremely visible. Everyone can look it up on a block explorer and see it. If you've never linked to your ID or something, that may be good enough. Um, but in most scenarios, that's a bad idea. But that's the default behavior of Bitcoin. Um, and ultimately, a lot of the problems come down to within Bitcoin, that default behavior plus amounts being completely visible, addresses being completely visible, um, outputs being known spent or unspent. Those things combine to build a, a chain that 
I think was very useful in the early days to be able to, to demo it to people for Satoshi to show people what Bitcoin did. If it had the privacy of Monero, I don't think nice little nod nice to the name enough, man. Um, if he had tried to demo something like Monero, I don't know if it would have ever taken off because no one could have seen that. No one could have looked up a block explorer and seen these are the outputs, these are the amounts being spent. You couldn't visualize that in the same way that you could with Bitcoin being transparent. So I think there's a lot of value in the bootstrap phase of that. Yep. But those things boil down to it being extremely difficult to achieve privacy on Bitcoin because you you have to basically fight all of the defaults within Bitcoin to gain on-chain privacy. And that means anyone not using the right wallet, not understanding the tools, not properly approaching it, they're going to gain, uh, uh, they're, they're basically just going to lack privacy and they'll have that fragile pseudonymity, which hopefully will be enough for them. But for most people, it won't. And then the people who understand the tools, who take the time, who have the money and the the technical expertise to approach the privacy tools, they can theoretically gain strong privacy on chain. So you really have kind of two classes of people transacting and that some people can achieve privacy and some can't. And when you're able to do something via the protocol itself and enforce same defaults, like for instance, if we want to talk about potential features, you could hard fork into Bitcoin. Confidential transactions or confidential amounts, I think is a, a better name for those would allow you to hide the amount in every transaction in Bitcoin. And if you could do that, all of the privacy tools being built out for Bitcoin would be much simpler. Uh, you could grant, you could gain much better anonymity sets from the tools because like something with Samurai Wallet, when you join a CoinJoin mix, basically you can only join it with a set output of certain amount of Bitcoin. Because if anyone has a different amount of Bitcoin, it's very simple to trace them through based on the amount. So if you could hide the amount, you could join with 0.01 Bitcoin and someone could have 50 Bitcoin in the same mix and it wouldn't matter. Right, okay, okay. Do you think there's a there's another layer to this as well? I've not heard it discussed, it might have been discussed, but there is um, there's a huge re regulatory lens on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Now, has been, ever since it became popular. There are certainly people in this world who don't want Bitcoin to exist. They wish it would go away for whatever they, whether they have this fundamental belief that Bitcoin is bad or just because they just want control. Whatever their reason is, there's this regulatory lens. Monero has both a, a, a weaker and a stronger regulatory lens in that it's not in the, uh, it's not the forefront of the industry like Bitcoin is, but, but there are higher concerns regarding it because it is completely private and there's you know, assumptions and accusations regarding it. Mm -hmm. Do you think if Bitcoin... Do you think there's potentially an actual risk to Bitcoin having full on-chain privacy in that at the moment that would be not palatable for regulators? Um, I mean... Let's get the 21 million. <laughs> let's get um, a Bitcoin standard. Let's get everyone on Bitcoin. And then mm -hmm. when, we, when we can't come back, then we could maybe add some deeper privacy tools. Yeah, I mean, I guess the two responses to that, to the last piece specifically, I, I would definitely ask people to consider, can we reach that state? Can we actually fight an adversarial battle, a digital battle, but a battle nonetheless, against the state to get Bitcoin to being at that stage without on-chain privacy? If there are very, very few people able to transact privately using Bitcoin, and most people using Bitcoin are both ID'd and completely traceable on-chain, can you reach that kind of hyper-Bitcoinization world and that's one of kind of the main concerns for me is can you actually achieve the societal change you want to achieve through bitcoin if governments are very easily able to trace and connect names and addresses to on-chain activity 
And I think the current state of Bitcoin is mostly there, unfortunately, both the coupling of most people coming in through KYC, centralized exchanges, and then most people using very simple, basic Bitcoin wallets where they're not getting any on-chain privacy. Um, so I think that's kind of the pushback I would give on that idea of we can just add it in later because you may not ever get to that stage if everyone who's using Bitcoin is able to be traced and they can shut down the few people who are trying to use Bitcoin in a way that they, they don't want it to be used. Well, I was thinking more because you get to the point where you can't shut Bitcoin down because so many people have it. If you add it at that point, it's a bit too late to kind of because everyone's using it. It's you know it's ubiquitous. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue now that Bitcoin's probably large enough that it couldn't be shut down, and much of the but it could be regulated and, away. I mean, they could try to prevent people from easily acquiring it. But the beautiful thing with Bitcoin is that it doesn't really matter. I mean, ultimately, we should be. We should not be making our decisions on what Bitcoin should become or what the protocol should be or what wallets you should use or even what cryptocurrencies you should use based on regulatory pressure. Because ultimately, they are not looking out for your good. They could care less about you as a person. And I guess the cypherpunks would be like, look, fuck you, just take them on. Like they have done historically. Yeah. yeah. And that's a lot more the focus that Monero has taken is, is much more of a maybe not anti-regulation, many people are very anti-regulation, but much more of a, we're not going to worry about that. We're going to build the tool that will be the best tool possible for people, and then we're going to let the regulatory chips fall where they may. Okay. It's gone. Well, it's not gone. It's just, some, is that situation a bit of a catch-22, though, in the sense that to get to that point, we need the we need Bitcoin to have a very verifiable supply, and you lose that if you then have on-chain privacy on Bitcoin? You, you could do on-chain privacy, not as well, but you could do it without hiding amounts. Um, but obviously, I was mentioning confidential transactions or confidential amounts, which would hide those amounts, which reduce the simple auditability of Bitcoin. Um, one of the, shift this, one of the, I think, less well-understood aspects of auditability is that it's not really this kind of black and white, either something is auditable or it's not. With Bitcoin, obviously right now, because the, the UTXO set is transparent, the amounts are transparent, you could, in theory, just pull out your TI-84 and sum up the UTXO set, and you could see how many Bitcoin there are. And so you can verify that there's no inflation that way, no no uh, like exploit or anything like that. Mm-hmm. With something like Monero, it is auditable still, and it is being audited all the time by everyone running a node um, in two separate ways. So the first is, just like Bitcoin, the actual Coinbase output, the, the amount of Bitcoin or Monero that you get in a trans in a block when you mine it, that is completely transparent in Monero. Um, so you can ensure, just like in Bitcoin, that a Monero no Monero is minted in a way that it shouldn't be by miners through the Coinbase transaction. But obviously, the piece that differs is that within Monero, because the amounts are hidden, you're relying on this cryptography, this approach called either a range proof or bulletproof or confidential yeah. amounts, whatever specific or how specific you want to get. But you're relying on that cryptography and the implementation of that cryptography to prove when someone makes a transaction and when anyone verifies that transaction mm-hmm. that it balances properly. And, um, and the risk is if, if someone has, finds a way to break it, you might not know ever. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, the main concern is, is obviously in Bitcoin, we've had inflation bugs. There has been one that required a hard fork, um, but obviously amounts are visible. It was caught. In Monero, we've also had a bug that was able to be exploited, but no one exploited it, but it was also detectable. So there are even cases where in Monero, an inflation bug where someone could mint funds could be detectable depending on how it's done. Um, But you don't have, again, that simple detection. You can't just look at the amount on chain 
in each transaction and validate that this transaction has created 21 million Monero. That's impossible. So obviously that's bad. If it was just a standard transaction and they broke either the cryptography there, which is very, very, very unlikely, that's probably never going to happen, or there was an implementation bug and they found some exploit in that. Um, and that's the more possible piece. I think also very, very, very unlikely because the the actual piece that does that is very well understood and is a relatively old, in cryptography terms, technique. Um, but it is definitely, that's the biggest concern that I think many people have with Monero is there could be hidden inflation that we can't detect. Um, and that could be a problem. But that's also a lot of why I focus on that for Bitcoiners specifically, Bitcoin is as savings, Monero for spending. Because if you're just using it as a method of exchange, the risk of hidden inflation doesn't really matter for you. Now, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for the future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides you the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee and no foreign transaction fees. And you can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases forever. And you know what? You can also earn 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar over $50,000 of annual spend. If you would like to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions. All available at BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it is Casa. Whether you've just bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy for you. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it's just a click or phone call away. Casa has the best in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Take your financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, it's Ledger, and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus. With a larger screen, it makes it much easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger user since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you'd like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Also, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino and is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences and that money can't buy. BitCasino has 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please gamble responsibly. Is there an easy way to, I mean, in an ideal world, 
you would just, if you wanted to make a transaction, you would send some Bitcoin and you would re receive some Monero and the transaction, well, actually, no, that's probably terrible because that exposes the, the fact that you're doing it. But is the best way, therefore, then just to have a wallet maybe just like hold a couple hundred bucks worth and you know it might go up and down, but in the short term, if you're using it regularly, then then you've got an amount to play with. Yeah, I mean, it's that's exactly the it's reason. Like a, it's like a SATS wallet. Yeah, yeah, I would use it very, like, the way I recommend it to most Bitcoiners is to use it very similarly to how you would use kind of a, a normal hot mobile wallet where you keep something on you. Yeah, you're not going to keep your whole Bitcoin stash on your phone, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but you keep some on you so that you can spend it easily. Um, and I would recommend people treat it similarly. And the Monero community has given of our, our own voluntary donations to fund two different approaches to atomic swaps between Bitcoin and Monero, which essentially allow you to swap in and out of Monero or Bitcoin, vice versa, in a way that is completely trustless so that the other person can't cheat you, you can't cheat them, and both of you either go through with the swap or don't, but you're not trusting any kind of central exchange, you're not trusting some uh, instant exchanger provider or something. Um, Explain the anatomics, what, what is it? How does it work? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very fascinating idea. It's basically, it's something that's been talked about for a very long time in Bitcoin. Um, it's a very old concept, but it's something that's never really come to fruition. Um, and the Monero community has been trying to change that because obviously Monero would benefit greatly from Bitcoiners being able to swap into Monero and vice versa. Um, but also because that would be a very much a net positive for society and for Bitcoiners and Monero users to be able to, to quickly swap back and forth. But basically what it does is it uses features on both chains, mostly Bitcoin's scripting to be able to build out transactions in such a way and communicate between the two parties in such a way that you can build transactions that will only go through if both people actually follow through on their end of the deal. Um, and you're able to do this in a way that is still privacy preserving. It's done exclusively over Tor to make sure that the other person doesn't know your IP address and that kind of thing. Um, it almost makes uh, Monero a, a sidechain to Bitcoin. Very much so. I mean, a lot not of times... Not exactly. I know some people say, no, it's not a sidechain because it's, you know... It would function in, in, yeah. in a similar way. I mean, the, the only real difference at that point would be that it's obviously not pegged to yeah. BTC, the token. It's not pegged to that price. And that would, I think, be the, the concern that a lot of people would have. And again, that's why you probably, if you're wanting to use, just use it for spending, you just swap in a bit. You don't keep half of your life savings or whatever in there. Is, is a big reason that's valuable to Monero that if... Um Regulator, regulations get harsher and harsher that there's a good chance that they stop any exchange from actually having Monero. So it's a way of getting in without a, a regulated exchange. Yeah, I mean, the ridiculousness of the, the whole regulatory landscape out there is that there's no regulation of law that speaks against Monero's usage or Bitcoin's or anything like that. But basically, regulatory bodies and bankers have used back channels to pressure exchanges to delist mm. Monero or not list Monero. Um, and so because of that, there actually are quite a few, there are many less exchanges than you would expect for a cryptocurrency that's as well established as Monero. How many? What, what are the known ones? I mean, like if we're talking about the U.S. specifically, you really only have Kraken. Oh, you only have Kraken. There's yeah. no Coinbase. There's no Binance U.S. There's B no other. Bittrex had it at one point. They did have it for a while. Um, they delisted it with a bunch of uh, other Proclaimed privacy coins, which a few of a few of them actually went to Bitrex and said, "We're not actually that private. You should relist us," which I thought was very ironic. But they were one of the ones as well that there's no, there's still no regulatory framework that says you can't list or support Monero. Um, but they are pressured by their banks essentially, who tell them, "We don't want you touching Monero. So either remove Monero, or it, we're going to cut off your your banking ties." Interesting. Um, yeah. I've got a question that could be so stupid that Ben might have to cut this out. Um, but 
Is there a risk then to Monero that if all the exchanges are pressured to not list it, there's no market? So then how can you have an atomic swap when there's no market for Monero? The the only difficulty there would be just determining the swap price. That, that is that, literally that's the, the question. That was yeah. the question yeah. I was going to ask. So uh, you, yeah. you fit in well here. Huh? <laughs> I mean, at, at that point, it would be if it was literally on no exchanges, um, which I doubt that that will happen in that extreme. But if there were literally no exchanges, the price would be determined by probably some sort of decentralized exchange, either BISC or the Monero version of BISC that's coming soon called Haveno, um, or the Atomic Swap market itself. I mean, there's no, with Atomic Swaps, there doesn't have to be like an, an actual exchange. You could just say, I want to swap with someone and they can just swap with you. Um, but usually there'll be some sort of order book done over tour or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So it could just be a, a fixed price there that changes based on what prices people agree on. But that would definitely be an interesting piece because you couldn't just ping Kraken to get the the exchange rate and, yeah. and understand that. So it would definitely bring complexity, but it could still be done. It would probably just have more swings maybe, but it also could lead to price increase because there's no way to easily get it. So the people who want to get it would have to get it off market, oh, OTC or something like that. So yeah. that would certainly be an interesting scenario to go through. But thankfully there are still some exchanges and there are good decentralized exchanges at the moment. Um, BISC is really the one of the better ones, local Monero is another one. Um, so there are some good avenues you could get it outside of those centralized exchanges, but that would be a complicating factor for sure for atomic swaps. With the Bitcoin for hodling, Monero for spending, is, it, does that present a risk to Monero in that um, if people aren't hodling Monero, then the price itself would trend down? I mean, my expectation is of a long enough time period, Monero always trends down against Bitcoin, potentially. Uh, there are scenarios where it the opposite is true, but mm -hmm. is, is, does that present a risk? You know, you're still going to want some people to believe so much in Monero that they're holding it. Yeah, I mean, I when I talk about Bitcoin is save, for savings, Monero is for spending, that's really just kind of an easier way for Bitcoiners to approach it. There are lots of people who choose to only save and spend in Monero. Um, and there are many people who obviously only choose Bitcoin. So there there is this wide gamut. And I think there will always be people who are more Monero only. I have been mostly saving value in Monero um, over the long term as well. And well, Can I ask why? Mainly for the simplicity. Um, a lot of kind of what I focus on with spending Monero is, is the same, but even saving in Monero is that I don't have to worry about the privacy. I don't need to worry about what am I doing with these funds? How did I withdraw them? Where do I send them? How do I actually move from my cold wallet to hot? And how do I do that without linking all of my life savings to this coffee that I'm about to buy? That kind of thing. Right. Okay. I've... Um can you buy coffee with Monero? Uh, yeah, you can buy gratuitous. You can buy coffee bags direct to your door. Um, well, that yeah, okay. I'm thinking you can't go a to coffee Star shop. You can't go to Starbucks. Well, no, not Starbucks. Can you go to Starbucks and pay with Bitcoin? I mean, you can get those cards that are linked to your Bitcoin wallet. So there's like there's options like that that that, that does exist. How's that worked out for you economically? How's that? Because I don't know how Monero has performed against Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not as well as if I had just done Bitcoin only. I mean, okay. to be completely honest, I'm not, not going to lie about that one. Um, but the price differential has been worth it for you. Yeah, I mean, it's still been very advantageous compared to like holding in fiat. And a lot of it has been helpful, I think, to keep me, I know this feels weird to say, but it, a lot of it's been helpful to keep me focused on the freedom aspect of it and okay. less on the, the, the money aspect. But hodling Bitcoin alone from when I got in, but I got in at like the worst possible time to Monero. Okay. Um, so there were many times before that where Monero was vastly superior to Bitcoin in price appreciation. And there have been times even now where Bitcoin's drop, Monero has actually done better than Bitcoin. So just like any other thing like that, there are ups and downs and there can be times when it's been better. And I think as we see 
And, and there's great momentum behind this as we see most people who want to spend cryptocurrencies start to shift into using Monero. I think we'll see a great drive behind the price as well. Can Not, you say that again? Most, most people who want to spend cryptocurrency starting to use Monero. That's a bold statement. It's not there yet, but it, the the momentum is there. I've been able to talk to a well, lot mo of people. Most of, most of momentum are two different things. If you say the momentum's trending up, like that, that's interesting. But saying most is, I, I don't believe that's true. I, I maybe should segment it more to most Bitcoiners who want to spend are spending in Monero or are approaching that. And many people who people would think have nothing to do with Monero are already using Monero and spending it today. I, I but most people just don't talk about it. Hmm. There's no way of verifying that. That sounds like Monero marketing to me. No, I mean, you can verify it in, we've seen a lot on the fringes with things like darknet markets where they're becoming Monero only or Monero focused. Uh -huh. um, we've seen Bitcoin markets go down and Monero only markets come up. We've seen a large shift there, which is usually the really the the portent for things to come to, to see what's going to happen in the other places. And then we've also seen that Merchants and things like uh, coin cards that accept Monero, which there are some larger ones like BitRefill that don't accept Monero, but the ones that do accept Monero are overwhelmingly shifting to Monero being the dominant currency used on those platforms. As far as like merchant adoption, I mean, obviously Bitcoin is superior right now, but we're seeing this shift between people who who love Bitcoin and they want to spend it, but if Monero is accepted, they're gonna spend Monero because it's so much simpler. The headache is so much less. And so they're shifting into that and we're seeing the this circular economy grow. We're obviously not there where most people are spending in Monero, but I'm just saying that there's a shift yeah, happening right now. I, I think I think a trend, I, I've seen it myself. Mm -hmm. I, I have seen it myself. I've, mm -hmm. I've seen a lot more people talking about it. I've seen the conversation become more open. Uh, I don't believe that most people wanting to spend Bitcoin and move into Monero. But I, but I think saying most and the trend are two different things and both are positive. I just think mm -hmm. one's real, one isn't. Um, in, in terms of Monero, how do how do how does Monero achieve out of the box um, private transactions where Bitcoin can't? What is the mm -hmm. difference? What's being done here? Yeah, I mean the the main thing that's been done is Monero has taken this holistic approach to really remove the necessity and the, the onus from the user doing all of the privacy to the protocol, making sure that if you're using Monero, you're getting all this privacy, um, and it does this through a holistic approach, which there are three main building blocks there. Um, one of those building blocks is the, the confidential amounts, confidential transactions that we talked about before, where all amounts within Monero on-chain are hidden. You can't see any transactions amounts, um, and so thus you can't see anyone's wallet amounts, you can't see who you're sending money to, they can't see anything about yours. There's a funny thing on the Block Explorer, right? If you look <laughs> it up, doesn't yeah. it say something, stop being sneaky. Yeah, it's like, oops, you were trying to see the, uh, the rich list yeah. or to peek into an address. Yeah. Do you know why I know that? looked up to see your own transaction? Yeah, so the first time I bought Monero, um, I was using, surprisingly for me as a, as a technical moron, I was using the command line interface. Mm. So I, I actually had the CLI to use it. And yeah. I, God knows how I preserved that and never lost everything. <laughs> there did come a point where I wanted to get it out and uh, yeah, Fluffy Pony had to... Um, uh, Coach you through it. To, well, no, he, he swept it for me and I just trusted him and uh, he sorted it out for me. But uh, I did go to check my balance and mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm being sneaky, am I? Yeah, nobody, nobody's peeking in there. No one's having a look. You can if you have the keys, but yeah. not looking on an Explorer. So that hiding of amounts is a very critical piece and that kind of undergirds the rest of the approach. Um, and the, the other two pieces there are something called ring signatures, mm -hmm. which basically ensure that whenever you send a transaction in Monero, you can't actually see which output is being spent. So when I send you a transaction, you can't tell which input is from me 
because I'll essentially build a ring of right now, my input and 10 others. Soon we have an upgrade coming up in July, my input and 15 others. Um, and essentially any of those could be the true spend. Any of those could be the actual input to the transaction. So even if you even if you wanted to dig in and try to find what else I've done, you can't know for sure which one of the inputs is actually mine that I'm giving you. Um, and obviously no one outside, no one looking at a block explorer or anything like that can see the true spend in any transaction. What about the bloat on the chain? Because one of the things I was told is that to, to achieve that, I think it's because of the bulletproofs, that bulletproofs require a lot more data, so you get more chain bloat to achieve this. Yeah, so there's a couple pieces. There's there's certainly trade-offs to everything. Um, with, with those bulletproofs, you do gain increased transaction size, so the actual transactions on chain are larger than a standard Bitcoin transaction. But what a lot of people don't understand is if you're using Bitcoin privately, it actually takes up more block space than using Monero because you have to make multiple transactions to be able to spend privately within Bitcoin. Whereas within Monero, you only have to make the one. Um, so I actually have a, a blog post that runs through all this. It's like my first blog post that I published. But Has anyone fought you over that? Uh, no. No. Because it's just, it's just true. That's just the way that it works on oh, chain. Oh, interesting. Because you essentially have to spend three transactions on Bitcoin to achieve reasonable privacy and actually spend the funds. Whereas with Monero, you just spend the funds. Um, and so while Monero transactions are like, 1.3, 1.4 kilobytes per transaction. Um, if you're making the Bitcoin transaction, uh, I think it was like, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was like 1.6, 1.7 kilobytes to actually make that private spin because you have to make three separate transactions, all of which add up to be larger on chain, which is something a lot of people don't realize. Um, but the other trade-off that does come with the ring signatures specifically is that because you don't know which inputs are spent, you can't actually prune in the same way that like a Bitcoin node can. Right, okay. Because you can't just keep the set of unspent transaction outputs. Because you don't know what they are. You don't know. Like, you only know your spent transaction outputs. You don't know anyone else's. Um, and so because of that, that is a vital piece for privacy, but you can't prune in the same way. You can still prune Monero's blockchain and get rid of a lot of the other data. Um, so like right now, I think a prune node in Monero is about a third the size of a full node. Um, and both are still smaller than Bitcoin's blockchain right now. Um, but you can't prune the same way. So there are certainly trade-offs with these things that, um, that you, you pay for. And the other main privacy piece within Monero is something called stealth addresses or one-time addresses. Um, and these are very similar if people who know the Bitcoin privacy space know what a PayNim is or, or Bit47, something mm -hmm. that Samurai Wallet has kind of championed and, and driven for a while. Um, and basically, it means that the address that you give to somebody in Monero for them to send you funds is never published on chain. So even if you have that and you go to a block explorer and you look at this address, just like you mentioned in your your example of trying to look at your own balance, you can't actually see anything about an address on chain because there's only a unique one-time address that's used with each transaction that's generated from that public address that was shared with you. Um, and that breaks a lot of the very common tracing in Bitcoin, which we even saw a very fascinating paper come out, I think today, um, about improving the wallet clustering heuristic, which is this idea of maybe you don't reuse addresses within Bitcoin, but you do different things like your change outputs look a certain way or you combine funds. And those things can tie uh, addresses back together within Bitcoin. And so people who are doing block blockchain analysis can tie things back to one single entity, even if you've never reused an address. And this is the kind of thing that oh, very few people will understand will do the research and will be able to, well, maybe not, like they just don't even care because it's just too much work and they won't even know if they've made a mistake. 
And that's one of the things that I find tricky. And I'm sure this show is going to piss a bunch of people off, but it, but it's true. And I think you have to be yeah. you have to be honest about these things. You say the blockchain, the uh, Monero blockchain, is smaller than the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm-hmm. Is that though because it's yeah, it's a less popular? Yeah, I mean, the, to be completely honest, yes. The the main reason that it's smaller is because it is less used right now. It's about ten to fifteen percent of the transactions per day of Bitcoin. Um, if we had the same transactional volume as Bitcoin, it would definitely be larger. But like I mentioned with the the size of using Bitcoin privately, if you used Bitcoin privately at the same transaction volume as Bitcoin today, it would be much, much larger. The but chain not, would be about a terabyte in size. But not everyone is and not everyone will. And not, yeah. not every transaction needs to be private. Like, okay, yes, in an ideal argue, world, but. in an ideal <laughs> world, but I'm just saying it's like, even if I knew how to do it, I mean, I'm not sure I would every single time. There's some that just, there's some that are, are, are almost unnecessary in that I've got a commercial trade e-commerce relationship with somebody, it'd be very easy to even track back to me with that because they could go and the, put a gun to their head and say, who are your customers? So that, like, it, it's not required for me um, in, every, in every scenario. Talk to me a little bit about just like the general basics of Monero. Like, what is the block size? How, how long does the transaction take? Mm-hmm. How decentralized is it? Just some comparables for Bitcoin. So I've got like a benchmark. Yeah, yeah, I'll really quickly kind of go through both Bitcoin and Monero's approach to things. Um, so, obviously, with Bitcoin, we have kind of a one megabyte block limit, but also we have SegWit, and so that introduces some interesting things with the way that transactions are weighted. Within Monero, we have what are called dynamic block sizes, um, and this is essentially approaching block sizes with the idea of we don't want to ever have to make a decision on what size block blocks should be. We want the usage on chain to decide that, and we want a penalty to be paid appropriately if people want to increase the block size. Um, and so, what that means is basically that Monero is not—we're not just going to scale to infinity and have like BSV level block sizes. That's not the goal. But the goal really is to enable in these times of quick inflows of lots of people want to transact, like we see when Bitcoin crashes or goes to the roof or whatever. We see a lot of people rush on chain to make transactions, and Bitcoin's block size is fixed. So if there's no one transacting, it's this block size. If way too many people to fit into that block are transacting, it's this block size, and that doesn't change. Within Monero, essentially what happens is miners can choose to increase the block size slowly and pay a penalty from the actual um, block subsidy, the amount of Monero that they're given from the network, not the fees themselves. And they can pay a penalty in that, and then they can basically make up for it and gain more by including more transactions, and then the fees make up for that penalty. So essentially, miners can pay to increase the block size to to benefit themselves, but then the block size comes back down, and you have to keep going through that penalty process anytime there's a rush on chain. And that just helps for those short-term scaling situations. That's not to say that Monero can can serve a, a billion people transacting every day or anything like that. It doesn't just magically solve the yeah. problems that come with distributed databases like blockchains are. Um, but it's, a, I think, an interesting approach to that where we won't have to have that potential debate or hard fork to increase block size or something. We won't have block size wars. We won't have anything like that. How long does a transaction take? So in Monero, the block time is two minutes. Okay. So if you're just waiting for one conf, the actual security guaranteed by one conf in Bitcoin and Monero is not the same. So you can't really compare them. Um, Monero is very secure and has very decentralized mining, which you can jump into next. But it's a two-minute block time. So if you're just waiting for a confirmation to make sure they're not going to like do a simple double spend in the mempool or something like that, um, it's very quick. So a lot quicker uh, block times with smaller blocks right now. Um, the minimum block size starts out at 300 kilobytes versus the one megabyte of Bitcoin. 
So they start out small, but like I said, they can grow as necessary um, within certain bounds. There's a lot that goes into that. But. And what about fees? Is, is it similar to Bitcoin in that the, the oh no, because if you've got dynamic blocks, are the fees kind of fixed? So there's actually a really interesting thing that's enabled by um, both dynamic block size and another difference between Bitcoin and Monero in that Monero has this thing called a tail emission. Um, and this is actually going into effect tomorrow, which is interesting. Um, very well timed for this talk. But this tail emission means that contrary to Bitcoin, which eventually all Bitcoin will be mined and there will be no Bitcoin emitted by the network, there will just be transaction fees, which within Bitcoin, we're just hoping that that's the fee market materializes and we're okay. Um, but that's very much not proven and Im impossible to predict. I can't tell you it's going to work or it's not going to work. Within Monero, uh, they've imp implemented something called the tail emission, which means that at a certain point when all of the defined supply is kind of what we call it, is emitted, and that's 18.4 million Monero, this tail emission kicks in, which means that for every block, there will be 0.6 XMR emitted as the block subsidy. And that will go on forever. And I know that is anathema to, uh, to Bitcoiners and this idea of this 21 million hard cap. But what that means is not only that we, we know for a fact that there will be a lower bound of network security. So we know that miners can mine for that 0.6 XMR, even if no fee market materializes. Mm -hmm. But it also enables us to, um, to do the dynamic block size because you have to have a subsidy to do the dynamic block size because you need to be able to penalize something to raise blocks or they would just be raised infinitely. Um, and then it also enables fees to actually have a very interesting inverse relationship to usage. So as usage in Monero goes up and as block sizes increase, fees per transaction actually go down. So the more people use Monero, the lower the fees get because you're essentially compensating each other and coming together to produce enough value for the miners to mine and they have that guaranteed 0.6 XMR in the tail emission. Um, and so fees actually go down as block sizes increase. But that necessity for a fixed limit for Bitcoin has different meaning that Monero, uh, the goal of a number of Bitcoin is, is for Bitcoin to be the standard for the world, not have inflation so you don't have money distortion. And that's an, that's an important thing on, on the side of Bitcoiners. And if, if Monero acts like a payments network that's usable by people who are Monero fans or Bitcoin fans, it has slightly different trade-offs. I think that's more acceptable. I, I think the thing that people don't really look at is that the problem is not any inflation. The problem with like the fiat regime is that Inflation can change at any time and is completely under the control of a centralized entity. Predictable versus unpredictable. Yeah, so Monero is perfectly predictable. So at any point in the future, I can understand how much of the supply I own, how many Monero there will be, all of that. Um, yeah. So you still have that same predictability that you have with Bitcoin. And the inflation rate is actually lower than Bitcoin is today and will remain lower, I think, until 2040. Um, is, is it fair to say it's, as, it's predi perfectly predictable, though, when it's had quite a number of hard forks? Yes, that's because a, that's a fair criticism. No, that's a, that's a very good question, um, and a lot of people bring that up. And uh, I mean, I would say that just just like Bitcoin, the money supply is just as fixed in social consensus as Bitcoin's is. And really, in Bitcoin, it comes down to social consensus. Obviously, Bitcoin could hard fork to have forty two million Bitcoin ever they wanted, but that would never that ever never ever happen. ever happen. Yeah. And similarly in Monero, that would never ever 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 be changed because just that just because you can change things and ultimately what's changing in Monero is not the money supply. We're changing the actual transactional protocol to improve it. The money supply is untouchable. That will never be touched. And that's it's the same idea of social consensus in Monero as in Bitcoin there. Um, and that's something that just would be non-negotiable. Obviously, that would be a very contentious hard fork and the hard mm -hmm. fork that tried to change the supply would just die. It feels like 
it's easier to achieve social consensus with Monero with a smaller community than it is with Bitcoin. But Bitcoin also has built this attitude of like, we move slow, we're a glacier, it's hard to change. Like, you want to change it? Fuck you, prove it. Whereas (laughs) I can imagine Monero is a tighter, mission-driven community and social consensus is a lot easier to achieve. Therefore, changes into uh, monetary policy might be a little bit easier. No, 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 I definitely don't think so. Okay. I think just just like in Bitcoin, that's something that is just simply untouchable. Because if you touch that, everything else falls apart. Because those are the incentives you've set up. That's what everyone has been understanding from the Genesis block. And that's something that really no cryptocurrency project should be able to touch that and survive. Obviously, some do, which is crazy One to does. Me. Yeah, absolutely crazy to me. Specifically, <laughs> one massive one. Um, Another thing I wanted to ask you about, um, mm-hmm. specifically with Monero, is is there any need or talk about requiring something similar to the Lightning Network? Hmm. Yeah, so there's actually been some really interesting research around ways to do that. Um, it's more complex in Monero because course, yeah. unlike most cryptocurrencies um, and really many things out there today, um, especially when Monero was created, but even today still, Monero is not just a Bitcoin fork. Um, where we didn't just take the code base and make something unique. It actually is... It's a fork of something else. Yes, but it's built out of a completely unique protocol that was not related to Bitcoin okay. at all, called CryptoNote. Um, and because of that, we have very different things built into Monero. And one of the things that is different is that we don't have a scripting ability like Bitcoin does. And so we can't do things like hash time lock contracts, which Lightning relies on, or point time lock contracts, which Taproot enables, and hopefully we'll be using in Lightning in the future. So building out a network, a channel-based network like Lightning is more difficult. Um, There have been some interesting research uh, kind of forays into how it would be possible using different security mechanisms instead of hash time lock contracts. But obviously those are very theoretical. Um, But I definitely do think that there will be both the need and the ability to build out a layer two similar. I would would think similar to Lightning Network. Um, I'm actually going to be talking about this MoneroCon in a few weeks. Um, but I, I think that within Monero specifically, because we don't need to rely on a second layer for privacy and we don't need to rely as much on a second layer for scaling because those dynamic block sizes, they enable those rush times to be able to handle. Again, not infinite scaling, but they allow some some flexibility there. I think we could do something that would be maybe a simpler version of the Lightning Network that's more peer-to-peer focused and less complex um, and that that would be more easily enabled by the different things that Monero has. What's the decimal of Monero called? Mons or something? Uh, I don't know that it has a set name. Most people call it Piconero, which is just the technical way to say. Um, yeah, I've never heard that. Yeah, uh, that's the the technical one. I think Takoshi is another one that some people have mentioned from Taco Time, who is a, an early person in, in the Monero community. Um, but mostly Piconero or just Monero. What's MoneroCon? When is that? Where is it? Uh, so MoneroCon is happening in... Just like 10 days now. Um, it's going to be in Lisbon, Portugal. Huh. Um, we're going to be having that, I, th- I want to say it's the 18th and the 19th. Um, and yeah, that'll be really good. We we actually had the first one in 2019 and haven't been able to have one since. So this will be the first, first Monero coin in a while. Um, Are there any uh, privacy weaknesses in Monero, like silly things that more like me could do that <laughs> causes issues? Like if I was to, I don't know, buy some on an exchange and then I'm linked to it and then send it to Danny and then he goes and sells the same amount, like any kind of things you, you like you have to be honest about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for the most part, no. I mean, a, a big reason why Monero does what it does is because we're trying to make sure that users who have no idea what they're doing still gain strong privacy. Okay. Um, the biggest... 
I guess I would say the biggest potential flaw within Monero is um, a specific type of targeted attack that's called an Eve, Alice Eve attack or EAE. Um, and essentially what that means is if you were to buy on like a KYC exchange, you withdraw to your own wallet and then you send right back to the same exchange or a different one and you're trying to remain anonymous between those two, it would be visible to those exchanges if they colluded, if they talked to each other, right. that that was actually you doing those transactions. Um, that doesn't matter for most people, if, unless your threat model is one where exchanges are going to be talking to each other to try to track you down. That's not really a concern, um, but it is definitely one to to be aware of. So if you're doing something like constantly sending back and forth between exchanges, you would just want to do something like send to yourself a few times before you send it to the other one. Um, but for the most part, the beauty of Monero is you don't need to be concerned as long as your threat model is not very high, very targeted, um, and very much surveilled actively. Hold on, I'm going to go back a second. Yeah. Could you use atomic swaps like a like a mixer slash coin join? So you you can, but the problem is, and let's just set Monero aside for a moment because yeah. it actually doesn't matter if it's Monero or anything else. Um, the problem is using another cryptocurrency as a mixer for Bitcoin uh, the problem is ultimately Bitcoin on both sides. So there are lots and lots of ways to trace you through a swap like that. Okay. And many of the people who have performed large hacks or uh, large things in the Ethereum ecosystem or like the Bitfinex, Bitfinex hackers, um, they have tried to use Monero or other privacy-preserving things as this mixer in the middle of their transactions, but they've used transparent assets like Bitcoin on both sides. And like if you've used... Atomic swaps. Atomic swaps would be probably the best case, even though it's still not ideal. But for most people today, you're going to use something like an, like fixed float, an instant exchanger, or something like that. And the problem is, say you deposit 0.5 Bitcoin, you swap it for Monero, and then you withdraw 0.5 Bitcoin on the other side. It's very, very easy to guess that you were the one who did both of those things, even if you use a complete new address. Um, and then there's also problems well, like... But, but couldn't you like... Couldn't you swap out, say, a Bitcoin worth into Monero, wait a few weeks, swap half back into an address, and then swap a 0.25? Could you do it like that? If you did it perfectly, yes. I mean, the, the problem just remains, you then need to have proper privacy on Bitcoin. And thankfully, there are tools like Samurai Wallet where you can gain good privacy on Bitcoin natively. And those okay. tools are almost always going to be superior because there's not some central entity that sees that swap that you're doing. Um, but when you're doing that swap back and forth, that's relatively easy to trace you through amount heuristics if you don't do something like break up the amounts in a random way, doing things like if you send it back to your wallet to a new address, but then you reuse it later on to combine with other funds to send a transaction, it's very easy to link that to the other funds that you have, even if, even if, even if you tried to distance them by doing this mixing process through some type of a some type of an instant exchange or atomic swap. So it very much can be done and it could be useful, but it is very difficult to do properly because of the issues with Bitcoin. And it doesn't matter if it's Monero, Zcash, Tornado Cash, whatever you're doing in the middle, because you're leaking massive amounts of data on the in and outside. And it's always going to be difficult. So you've obviously gone into a lot of debates on Twitter with Bitcoiners, <laughs> which one you're very brave for because I've seen the <laughs> the replies. Uh, Jack Mozuko has been uh, you, you you and him have had some quite long lengthy discussions. Uh, is there anything you've been wrong on where people have corrected you? Thought actually, you know, that's a fair argument. Hmm. Um, that's a good question. It's a hard one, just cold like that. Um, I mean, I think the main thing is like I'm definitely still constantly learning, especially about Bitcoin privacy, because okay. I focus on Monero, but 
I want to see Bitcoin privacy improve, so I try to keep up with the tools. Um, but I think a lot of the things that I have recently been wrong on or not perfect on have been Lightning Network related okay. privacy concerns because Lightning Network is very complex and the privacy associated with Lightning is very nuanced and very complex. So I've been trying to take a deep dive lately into how privacy works and what people should know about using Lightning if they want to preserve their privacy. Um, and that's been tricky and I've definitely been wrong a few times on things there that people have been helpful to to point out flaws, but overall people have been very, very kind and helped me to, to learn and, and wrestle with kind of what Lightning is and what it means for privacy. One of the tricky things with this, I, I alluded to it earlier, but um, stepping outside the Bitcoin circle and considering other things, mentioning other things. I mean, the other day I was talking about stablecoins saying, look, we can hate on shitcoin protocols, which I do, um, but we can hate on them. But there are people around the world who benefit from having access to stablecoins, which are far more important than Bitcoin. But even that uh, causes a reaction for some people. They're like, mm -hmm. no, just teach them about Bitcoin. It's like if you're not a halfwit, you understand that, that Bitcoin isn't right for everyone in every scenario. So like, mm -hmm. I've kind of come back a little bit on these protocols. I still think they're mostly junk, but at the same time, I'm like, well... If Tron is useful for someone in Africa to get dollars and that helps them day to day with their life, what the fuck am I to do with that? I can't, I can't hold that against somebody. Um, and I came out recently and said, I don't think Monero is a scam. I've been saying that since the very start. I don't think it is. And I got tweet stamped for that and yada, yada. <laughs> do you think the zealotry of Bitcoin is, is holding, well, I know you're going to say yes, but holding, <laughs> holding Monero back. Is there anything we can do to try and make people realize it's not a threat like for example you know defending the properties of bitcoin as a hodling asset promoting well it's, i'm basically repeating your line here aren't i yeah i mean i think that's kind of the the olive branch i have for bitcoiners is that bitcoin is savings monero for spending thing because i think that's probably the most reasonable and logical end result for people who actually want to be able to spend cryptocurrency um actually let me ask you are there Bitcoiners who are privately admitting to you they don't mind Monero, but it's not publicly admitting it? Yes, many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I, that's part of why I talk about, like, I see this, this building massive momentum among a lot of Bitcoiners, not Monero people, but Bitcoiners who understand what Monero brings as a tool for freedom. We're not talking monetary principles. Most of them are not saving money in it. That's their choice. There are many people who choose to do that, but most Bitcoiners are not. But there are many people who many people listening to this will know who are fans of Monero have been fans for a while and use actively, but they just don't talk about it publicly. Um, and I think that's a shame because it can be a very powerful and enabling tool for people to achieve financial freedom in ways that are different than Bitcoin. Many people can't achieve the privacy necessary on Bitcoin for their specific use cases, especially in authoritarian governments in human rights uh, areas that are much more difficult, especially when doing uh, donations to activist organizations. I mean, even the Freedom Convoy was a perfect example of when politics aside, we'll just assume maybe you wanted them to succeed and you wanted them to be able to protest. If you wanted to send them funds and them to be able to use it, Monero is a vastly superior tool because those truckers have no idea what they're doing with Bitcoin. To give them all of the tools they need to use Bitcoin privately, is that's an immense educational task for people who are sitting in their trucks protesting. And they still might fuck up. Yeah, and they still could screw up and and just get completely owned. But with Monero, you would have all of the main bases covered. There would still be things you want to give them in those scenarios, extra tips and tricks, just because they are very much under targeted surveillance. Um, but the vast majority of things be covered without them having any idea what they're doing. So those kinds of situations, I wish more Bitcoiners would 
especially Bitcoiners who already understand and use Monero, would come forward and say, even if you don't need to sell Monero as the tool people need to buy and invest in, I, I don't really care about that. But at least you would say, like, this is a useful tool in scenarios where you know you need privacy. And ultimately, I think many people will shift from that into just, if I want to spend cryptocurrency. But the start for many people is, I know I want to achieve privacy, and I want to be able to spend Monero to simplify all of that. Well, that self-censorship is a form of censorship. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's brought on by what you mentioned, this kind of maximalism or... I think I called it religious fervor uh, the other day when, when people were going at you on Twitter. Um, I don't give a fuck. I mean, yeah. uh, I, but but I've never given a fuck. So I, <laughs> I say all kinds of crazy shit and some of it's right, some of it's wrong. And I, like, I'm like, I'm allowed to now walk that line because if, if you think I'm an idiot, the girl, I just peace talking shit. But there's a lot of people I think reputationally are concerned perhaps about uh, the social pressure that comes from mm-hmm. admitting something like Monero is okay. Yeah. They suddenly get, oh, labeled, you're a shit coiner. Like, I mean, I did, but like, yeah. so I don't give a fuck. Um, but uh, I think that is, I think it's kind of dangerous in some ways because there is a tool out there out of the box that offers privacy options for some people who may need it mm-hmm. and uh, they're not getting the best advice. What was what was Giacomo's arguments back at you? What, what, what angle was he coming from? He was mostly talking about people who are promoting Monero and saying that it fixes all privacy problems, that you have nothing to worry about, and that there are no trade-offs. So I think he was mostly talking about other people who I guess he's running into who are Monero maximalists who are just telling him that it fixes everything, which is also ridiculous. Just like any other tool or privacy tool, it is not perfect and it has trade-offs. What what do you think the Monero maxis are getting wrong? Because they (laughs) fucked with me once. Do Do you know I did like some interview and they were like, asking me technical stuff about Bitcoin's fungibility. I don't know uh, this shit. Yeah. And, I, and then they like were attacking me. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I was a Monero fan. Now you're making me think it, like, now, now you want me to just tell you to fuck off. Like, I thought that was dumb. I, I think the main thing that they're getting wrong, I guess there's two key things. I think one is that Bitcoin is completely useless or completely harmful. Um, I think there there are ways to use Bitcoin that are are helpful. There's a lot of benefits that Bitcoin brings. And even if you could care less about the actual use of Bitcoin, Bitcoin has been an immensely helpful regulatory and social shield for Monero because we've been able to kind of grow up in its shadow and do a lot of things that uh, Bitcoin probably would have been very vigorously fought against, but we were able to just do it in Bitcoin's shadow. Um, but I think the other main thing that they get wrong is that a lot of Monero people, because of the privacy that Monero brings, they assume that this idea of a, a know your customer KYC exchange and the list that these exchanges are building about who owns what um, and what you do on chain, they think that it, that's not harmful as a concept at all if we're using Monero because you gain strong on-chain privacy. Um, and I liken Monero to withdrawing cash from an ATM in that you do gain that strong privacy and that the bank knows you withdrew cash, just like the exchange knows you withdrew Monero, but they don't know what you did with it after that. Um, and while that is immensely powerful, it doesn't remove any of the other risks of using these KYC exchanges and the ways that those can be leveraged against you either by the government or just by a hacker who hacks into that exchange, gets that list of who owns Monero, where they live, and then just goes knocking on their door with a $5 wrench and wants to see their Monero. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of risks there that I think are overlooked by the Monero community not all of them, but some parts of the Monero community, because they see the privacy as fixing that problem when it only fixes one piece of that. And that is an important piece in that in Monero, you won't be traced on-chain once you withdraw. But all of the other issues with KYC exchanges still exist just for Monero, like Bitcoin, like any other cryptocurrency, because obviously the exchange knows you bought it, when you bought it, when you withdrew it, who you are, etc. 
Fair. Well, look, I'm going to continue to look at Monero. I'm going to mm-hmm. dip back in. Obviously, I've got Cake Wallet now. <clears throat> so I think I'm just going to put a couple hundred dollars of Bitcoin in there. I'm going to try an atomic swap, see what it looks like. Um, I'm not going to be anti-Monero because I have no reason to be. Um, I think it's a useful tool for certain people. I think it's a useful tool for Bitcoiners. And I think yeah. I think you can step out of this shitcoin fear and just take a look at Monero and see how it can serve a purpose even if it's short term, medium term, whatever, I won't mm-hmm. stand by there. Someone gets angry enough. Just fuck off. I don't care. Um, is there anything I haven't asked you that you wish I had? Um, I don't think so. I think you covered really the we covered the majority of what Monero is and kind of what it can be. I mean, something that I've said on other podcasts and just want to repeat here is like ultimately I am not a Monero maximalist. Okay. I want the right tool for the job. Yeah. And I see Monero as that right now. But the reason why I continue to do work on privacy and Bitcoin is mostly education, not like dev work, but education and trying to, to build some good conversations around that is because ultimately the best thing for societal change and not just for personal freedom would be Bitcoin to have proper privacy built in in a very simple and approachable way so that anyone who uses Bitcoin, whether they use it as a miner, whether they use it to store life savings or they use it to transact and they need privacy, I want all of those people to gain strong on-chain privacy. And because of that, for Bitcoin to be a much more powerful tool for societal change. Um, and so that's just something I try to kind of harp on because people will see me as just a Monero maximalist or something. I don't think they'd think that if they actually knew the things that I say, but uh, I think it's important that people understand that Bitcoin, because of its network effects and because of its position, could do the most good overall. Um, but obviously, I view Monero as a more useful tool today, specifically for spending. I think for anyone, that's true. Um, also for savings, I think it can be helpful. But I think as a tool for freedom and as a tool for making those transactions, they don't want you to make. And as a tool for enabling freedom through financial privacy, which is a big part of the cypherpunk manifesto and a lot of the the early OGs, even before Bitcoin came around. Um, Monero is really immensely powerful for that. And even shares a lot of similarities to Bitcoin that Bitcoiners, I think most of them don't understand. But there's a lot of a lot of compatibility there and a lot of um, crossover. And, and I hope that both Bitcoin and Monero can benefit from atomic swaps and other things that can enable both groups to use the other tool and to gain the most from the combination of the two. Danny, we should coin this now. Uh, you are, yeah. Go fuck yourself. Uh, I swore a lot in this uh, show. Sorry, I get emails when I swear too much. Don't send me an email. I don't care. Um, all right, Seth, uh, if people want to follow you, check out your work, where do they go? Uh, main places are going to be Twitter is really the only social media I have. I'm just at Seth for privacy there. You're um, not on TikTok. No, I'm not on TikTok. We had a debate about that with Odell earlier. Um, no TikTok. Uh, I also have a personal blog, which is sethforprivacy.com. Um, I have a lot of writings, like the one about Monero and Bitcoin transactional size that I talked about earlier. Um, I also have a really interesting blog I just put out that I'm trying to keep up to date with all of the privacy pro- improvements that have been proposed for Bitcoin. Uh, I think it's a really helpful list to get an idea of what has been proposed, what's failed, what's succeeded, what's been accepted for improving Bitcoin's privacy. Um, so I have that as well as I think my latest blog post on there. Um, and then I also have a podcast called uh, Opt Out, um, which is mostly personal privacy focused, but really self-sovereignty. So we talk a lot of Bitcoin on there. Um, we talk a little bit of Monero, but I think we've talked more Bitcoin than Monero on there. Um, but more looking at the overall need for personal privacy and, and really the tools that you can leverage to gain that for yourself. Okay, well, look, we'll stick that one in the show notes. Uh, do really appreciate you coming in. Uh, for anyone who's getting upset and listening, listen, I'm not going to be making a whole bunch of Moneros now. I'm not launching what Monero did, uh, but this is very useful. I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's useful to learn about this and uh, I'm not opposed to checking it out. So I think, uh, 
I think I can go and do a Monero transaction and see how it goes. But look, appreciate you coming in, Seth. Great to meet you and stay in touch, Duddy. Yeah. Duddy? Dude. <laughs> I was about to say boop. I tried to say buddy and dude at the same time. I said Duddy. I think you said daddy. daddy. That's what I heard too. But <laughs> me, I'm a narrow daddy. It's escalated quickly. All right. Like, thanks for coming in, bro. Like, appreciate this and good luck with everything you do. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me on. Cheers. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, then please head over to the What Bitcoin Did Telegram channel. And if you want to support the show, all we ask is you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review.